0: Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Chai Break Podcast. This is your host, Shwetar and Ramachari from New York City. This season, we're excited to interview a roster of amazing South Asian women who have broken barriers, questioned norms, and continue to make a mark for themselves. They come to you from all over the globe, from Bangalore to New York, Melbourne, and everywhere in between. We hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we do and chime in along the way so let's get started
1: hello and welcome to the chai break podcast where we brew up chaiversations with phenomenal guests like the one we have in our episode today on each episode hi Shrita,
0: how are you hi rama doing good Yeah, we're really excited about today's episode it's no exception because each of these amazing women we've interviewed we've been inspired and uh yeah today we're with amrita doshi who is the co-founder and executive director of south asian soar a national organization dedicated to ending gender-based violence in the u.s within the south asian diaspora she is deeply committed to advancing and healing justice For South Asian survivors and communities, Amrita comes to this work with her own experiences of survivorship, as well as several years of work across public health, technology and art. I'm particularly excited for today's episode because not only is Amrita a multi-talented human, but she's also a very dear friend who I met via our common passion for dance. So welcome to the Chai Break Podcast, Amrita. So happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm so
1: happy to be here. So wait, before we actually even jump into any questions, I have a couple of things with just that kind of intro. One, I always want to ask you why sore, and two, how did you guys even meet? And like, you know, what was the background of that? Shweta, do you want to tell our story? <laughs> yeah, actually.
0: Um. So I think I I had moved here and I was looking for a space to start dancing, and uh, I think I just found uh, Gino, Gino Joseph, the one of the founders of, um, NYC Ardhivur, the Indian classical dance meetup group in New York city, which is, I think one of its kind, you know, we meet every Friday and that's how I met Amrita. And, uh, yeah, we instantly connected. I just loved her energy, her art. And, you know, I was always inspired by her. And then now, um, you know, she's not only a dear friend, but she's also a favorite auntie to Dia, my daughter. <laughs> my seven-year-old is obsessed oh, with her. <laughs> yeah. So she was like, oh, my God, you're interviewing Amrita today?
1: She was like so excited <laughs> when she heard. <laughs> Shweta and I think that Dia and I have some past life connection. because <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> and then I guess Shweta, you and me too. Yeah,
0: no, truly. Uh, Amrita is a force to be reckoned with. And especially because I think... Until uh, recently, when we were talking about getting Amrita on the podcast, I only knew Amrita, the dancer. I did not know the other part of Amrita. And I'm so glad and I'm even more proud of her and everything she's uh, doing and done so far.
1: So yeah, I can't wait to get started. So I gotta say from our vantage point, it was like Shweta was the cool mom who (laughs) would like wake up at 4am and like. Make all these different types of dosas and like work out and then like go to work on the ferry and then like wear these perfect outfits that, sh- that were thrifted and like we were like how does she do it all? We started the podcast and we we're like oh my god she's doing even more. So oh you always god. inspired me. Oh, we all can use a little flattery. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's definitely giving me a boost for the day. You guys splatted each other. No one splatted me. Fine, just you know, I'll with it. <laughs>
0: no in fact Amrita you know on the flip side as a new mom you know I had very very limiting beliefs and guess who like completely changed that for me it was Rama yeah so you know it's all like you know I think it's it's a tribe of women, right? We all look up to someone or the other. So yeah, yeah. no, Rama, actually, when I looked at her, I was like, wow, okay, so I can be a mom and I can do other things. Mm. Because I think like as a woman, there's so much guilt, mm. especially after you become a mother. And I think definitely Rama helped me, you know, overcome that and actually believe that, yes, I can do all of these things. Wow. Oh, thank
1: you. Thank yeah. <laughs> you. Yeah. Multiplying effect across our whole media. Exactly, that's the thing, right? I mean, yeah, and and it's quite nice to know that Shweta is always on the go, doing something or the yeah. other, and, and doing something that she really loves and cares about, which I am kind of envious about because I'm still not there yet. I'm trying to, but um, it's nice because that's the whole point, right? We try to meet and try to draw inspiration and all I don't one time just change our perspective. Well, enough about us. <laughs> now let's go back to Amrita. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. So,
0: Amrita, let's start way back, you know. Um, so you grew up in Orange County, California. So tell us about that. What were growing up years like at home, some early influences and impressions that left a mark on you? Be positive. Otherwise, like, what was that
1: like? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um So I grew up in a town called Cerritos, which is very um, South Asian. It's actually on the border of LA County and Orange County. So that's where I grew up. I was born there, raised there my whole life. My parents immigrated from India. So growing up for me, I mean, we grew up like pretty privileged. I would say by the time that I was born, my parents had established their medical practices. So I think as I was growing up, I had the privilege to do a lot of activities. and. I think dance really became my go-to. First, I started doing Bollywood dance, and then I think around age nine, idea So it seems like overall positive influences in child. I feel like early on, you know, like every, I feel like every Indian or South Asian person sees this in their family, right? You grow up really attuned to the way men treat women, the way in-laws treat their Uh like that Uh are in son-in-laws like you become attuned to that at a young age and like you see how people are interacting and like I think even when you're young you sense that something is off there and something doesn't feel right and I think also as like I mean I grew up with me my sister and my two other younger cousins and you know our our activities are relatively controlled like even when I think about getting to do all those activities sometimes I think about like They were all under the control and eye of my parents, which I respect and I understand why. But I also think, like, you know, it's very common to grow up in this sort of overprotected way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where your actions and what you do and who you see and what you like, who you hang out with are controlled. And I, again, like, I do understand, like, as I grow up and, like, as I see, like, young moms like Shweta and uh, just develop more empathy for what my parents. The worries they had, especially as I like am growing up into my adulthood in New York City, I'm like, Oh my God, I can't imagine letting my kids go on the subway alone. (laughs) Um, So I understand that. But I think it also leads to you as a young adult, maybe not developing the strength to like, have your own judgment or say when things are wrong or right, because you become reliant on an adult doing that for you. Or you don't trust yourself Mm -hmm. to make those decisions Mm -hmm. because you're having voices that say, you don't have the judgment, you don't have the autonomy or agency to make those decisions. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of more of, I I would say, like the flavor around, um, I guess what I was learning and observing within maybe some of the like South Asian or Indian dynamics that I grew up.
0: I think it's a very interesting point to bring up because uh, this reminds me of uh, a cousin of mine within my own family who actually, even to date, you know, she's well into her 30s, has two kids of her own. But decision making is not like she's the sweetest person you'll meet, but she just cannot make decisions. She's constantly reliant on her mother or her husband or someone to look to because she can't decide. And this can be as simple as picking out an outfit. Mm -hmm. Like she can't decide whether she loves it or not, or is it expensive? Is it okay? Is it worth it? Who will question me? Like, you know, basic things like this, because she's, again, been so overprotected in the best interest. But again, you know, I feel like there's a fine line between protecting your child and letting them experience life. Absolutely.
1: And I think that as I've grown up, I've also... Come to que- like as even as I'm saying, I've grown more empathy for why I also have questioned more like what does best interest mean? Right? Cause I think that's often what adults will say. Um, like we want what's best for you. We're looking out for your safety, but I think ultimately everyone has a desire for control here. And I think there is that fine line between like what is me really looking out for someone and what is like what is my desire to retain control mm-hmm. over someone's decisions? And so. I was actually speaking with like, someone yesterday. Um, and she was like, my grandmother would tell me like, people want to get their young kids married off because they don't want them to have control. And they don't want them to have power. Oh my God. And she was like, my grandmother said it so matter of factly. And she didn't even know it was like, sort of a feminist statement, if you will. But it's just interesting how much like that's ingrained in us. Like, so I think we're seeing the outcome of people not being able to make those decisions, maybe, but it's intentional on the people who didn't let them make those decisions, be a part of family finances, or educate them on those things so that they are empowered to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is such a great topic that we could just go on on this topic forever, because I think each of us growing up, uh, you know, uh, having Indian influences could relate to something of that. And I'm raising a 13-year-old and I'm just trying to um, also be the parent that gives her, um, you know, chance to make her own decisions. But at the same time, I'm also working with a teenager who thinks that she just knows everything, every time. So there is this fine balance of trying to make her understand that, no, she cannot um, not study for a particular test because she thinks Mm. she's really good. I mean, Mm. tests are coming up and you know, no, she has to go to dance and singing because these are fundamental hobbies that will actually nurture her for life. But at this point, dance and singing is something she thinks that oh, I just I think it's just a waste of time. But you know, I, I feel like there needs to be that balance because that's where the parents parents are guides, right? You have to steer the kids in the direction, and um, like what Shweta mentioned, is probably a little bit of an extreme where you really you know, micromanage every detail in a kid's life. And that's kind of an extreme, but I do support some of that, what I think our parents have done for us. Like I still remember the time when I rebelled against learning Mm Bharatanatyam
0: because I was really
1: young and they were trying to join me at like, like four or like some age like that. And I was like rebelling against it. But I am so glad they pushed me. My dad did not take no for an answer. That's it. You're just going, I don't care. And I kind of, sometimes I felt that that was the right thing because I was like, I would not have learned dancing. <laughs> like or loved it. So I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes it feels good um, to have that kind of somebody's steering us, even when we don't know whether we're doing the right thing. But sometimes we just don't want it to be the extreme. I wish there was a book where we could just like take notes and say, oh, this is the way you have to say, but yeah. we all learn from our experiences.
0: Yeah. I think what I take away from what you said, Rama, is the word guide. Yeah, And I think we have to keep that in mind that, you know, we're empowering them with the knowledge that, hey, you know what? You want to do this thing? These are the pros and these are the cons. Mm-hmm. And give the, you know, autonomy to take the decision and also tell them that they need to be accountable for their decisions. Mm, right. You know, I've started doing that in little ways with Dia. And like, whether she decides on like, I don't know, like a, 30 degree day that she doesn't want to wear a sweater and I'm like you know what that's your decision mm-hmm. it's gonna be cold I'm letting you know but you know if you think you're gonna be fine with it it's okay mm-hmm. so you know and then like if she complains and I'm like I'm sorry you you knew I told you you know I feel like in these little little ways to actually like just let go yeah. and letting go is, is not easy yeah. it's not easy you know again because you know you're you're just like oh my god like you know whatever you know the pros and cons to it. So you want to control the situation. But I think you just have to let go a little bit. And then when they face it themselves, they're like, Oh, you know what, at some point, they will think about it.
1: Yeah, can I add to that? Mm -hmm. Like, I think something that I think about also, and I hear what you're saying, like, what I'm questioning is like, how do we evolve that to like meet today's day and age, right? And like contemporary ways of raising a child or like, how someone has to be in the world. And so maybe we're saying like, no, you must go. And like, this is why, like to what your point is, Shweta, like here's what it might mean, right? Like these are such important things and they can teach you a lot. And if you don't go, like you'll lose that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like something I think about is how can you build like a trusting relationship where you as a parent show self-awareness? Mm-hmm. And if your child fails or runs into a challenge, they have enough trust to say like, okay, maybe I rebelled, or I did the thing that you told me not to do. And it was wrong. And like, can you help me now? And like, as a parent, you can be like, okay, like, yes, like, and and there's no ego there. So mm-hmm. that's something I think about too. like being, like sharing your point of view, but being open enough so that your parent, your kid knows that mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. can come back to you if there's a challenge. And like, just to bring it to the work that I do today, I feel like a lot of times that happens in like dating like people don't want to tell their parents they're dating someone because their parents have said like no you can't right right and then they might run into like an issue in that relationship and that's something that there's like no space to be honest about because
0: your parents don't know you're
1: dating they Mm -hmm. told you not to date that person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so now you you don't even have a place to go rely on for support Um, yeah yeah Yeah, that's a very good point actually Yeah. yeah
0: From art, you know, um, you've combined the field of art and the work you do in survivorship. Talk to us
1: about that story and how all of that kind of evolved. Yeah, sure. Um, I was telling Shweta in our prep call a little bit of the story, and it's not one I've like necessarily told in many times because oftentimes my art world tends to be like a little bit separate from my sore world or my professional world. But here goes. (laughs) So, I was telling you both like I grew up doing Bharatanatyam. I started at around age nine and at around like age 12. So, you, okay, like growing up, you do like, you do your adavus, which are your basic like steps. Then you start to learn dances. Then you start to like, I don't know, perform and things like that. Um, and so in my school, we would do like production. So I think the common ones are like, maybe the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. But we also did more like creative ones like I don't know, my teacher would do like Cinderella, for example. But when I was about like age, maybe 13 or 14, I think I did my first production. And a really cool part of growing up in the company that I did is we got to tour those productions. So um, at some point, I went to like New Jersey and Florida and, and Northern California to perform. And when I was 15, I got the opportunity to do one of those tours. Uh, so another thing that happens sort of when you perform live in Bharatanatyam is you'll often have like a live orchestra. Um So you have literally live music on the stage and that's kind of like four to five people, like a violinist, you know, mridangist, vocalist, et cetera. And on that trip, when we were touring, um, I experienced sexual assault by one of the people, members of the orchestra. Huh. And... I think like that whole journey and moment for me. So I was telling Shweta a little bit about this, but I didn't really tell anybody for about two years, um, to our whole like conversation right now, just about like, you know, maybe not having a safe place to go tell something when, when something's wrong. But, you know, it was such an interesting like merging of, I don't know, moments and worlds for me because. I was telling Shweta this, but like art is something, I mean, dance is something you do like with your physical body, right? Your, perform- your instrument is your body. And then when someone is assaulted in any sort of way, like it, a lot of times it happens like to the body mm-hmm. um, and obviously to the psyche as well, but like the body is primarily like an instrument for that. So it was very interesting to me to know how to like sort of carry forward and continue dancing after that, mm-hmm. especially when you know that people are watching you actually in a different way than the way that you are seeking to use or like take pride in the way that your body moves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of where like I would say the intersection of the two kind of started. Mm-hmm. And I think for a while like it took me or, or I I struggled to feel safe even in dance spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, because you didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell anyone, right? For I the first tell, couple I, of years. I told a few friends, mm-hmm. um, sort of here and there, because I would be interacting with that person. And so like, I would kind of have a safe person that I told every time that I'd be around them, just to make sure like, someone was watching my back. Yeah. Or, you know, it was important for me to know that I could like, yeah, rely on someone, but I did not tell my teacher um, or my parents for a couple yeah. of years. Yeah.
0: So from all of that, how did, because I think I, when I initially met you, I think one of the things that I got to know about was when I'd come to the concert of the, I think, it was it a fundraiser for Saki? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's when I got to know a little bit of the work you did. So yeah. what did you go to college for and how did Saki happen? Yeah.
1: So basically around my senior year of high school, I was about to do my Iron Gate trim, which is like when you sort of have your dance graduation or culmination, um or debut of sorts and this individual that I was talking about was going to be the person playing for that and I think I you know there's details I won't share but I had a moment of like okay I this can't go on and I, I need to tell someone so that that's not the situation because I didn't want to be put in that situation and so I actually asked my sister to tell my teacher and my parents for me which we can unpack like how internalized that silence was around not being able to physically or verbally like say that. And, and also I think that there's a huge role of like taboo here, right? Like to talk about that is difficult because no one ever teaches you like what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. How do you talk about your body? How do you talk about a soul of consent, any of these things? Right. Mm-hmm. But, so yeah, I, I told my teacher and my parents and it was through that journey that I was like, I think I really need to address this for myself. And I need to grow and build my strength to one, like be able to say what happened, be able to stand up for myself and assert myself and to not have that happen again. And one of the routes that I saw that happening through was um, I specifically sought out going to women's college. And so um, I applied to Barnard in New York City. Um, I got in and then I moved here. Actually, the day after my Iron Gate room was my new student's orientation. So I finished my my Iron Gate room and then I flew to New York the next morning. Wow, that's um, fantastic. <laughs> and it was so chaotic, but so thrilling. Um, and then as soon as I got here, I already had known of Saki because I was starting to like look into like other ways for me to build that. I wanted to build a community around it. I want to meet South Asian women who could talk about this, who were working on it, who were unafraid and like unapologetic in naming it and calling it out and addressing it. And I interned at Seki as soon as my sophomore year of college came around. Um, And Seki for South Asian women is sort of the like New York city based South Asian gender-based violence organization that's been around for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that was my first like professional introduction where I I met other people who really were talking about this, Mm -hmm. like and doing something about it. And also like were, just like, I think had analysis around like why this happens and Mm. what we can do about it and how we can work towards it. So, And how did Sucky to soar happen? Great question. So um, after my internship at Sucky, I ended up falling, sort of like moving away from the the nonprofit world and really finding my space in tech. Um, And I worked in like mental health and social um, determinants of health and technology But while I was doing that, I was also starting to build similar to like our conversation at the beginning of like always finding ways to do the things you love. Like as I was doing that, that's when New York City Adubu meetup started. And I was really thinking about how do I bring together like young professionals who were doing dance and art in the city, specifically South Asian artists and, and professionals. So I started to organize these arts shows. So in 2018, I organized one called Ma. Um, And it was an evening at classical dance. Proceeds went to Seki, and we spoke about some of the things we're sp- speaking about today through art throughout the evening. Mm-hmm. And then the year after that, I organized Seki's Gender Justice in the Arts show, which is what that came to, and that was an evening again similar, but maybe at, at a bigger scale. And so I was starting to like really understand what was I seeking out in this space, mm-hmm. and I was seeking out a community of people who wanted to talk about this, who wanted to like build art that was healing. I was watching people speak about their childhood and dance about it and have like, you know, share poems about it. And I was like, my mind was blown. And that was a huge moment for me and just realizing like how important art and storytelling, community building, healing, um, especially for young people. Because even as I went to college, I think I was realizing like, you know, it's oftentimes, sometimes when we talk about these organizations, we talk about them as like domestic violence organizations, mm-hmm. but there's a whole spectrum of abuse and violence, everything from child abuse to like college sexual assault and violence to elder abuse to like abuse and violence and queer relationships, just like so many that fall outside of that, maybe one category. Mm-hmm. So... Um, just to bring it to soar, a couple of years later, as the pandemic hit, I reached out to Kavita, who is the ED of Saki, executive director of Saki. And I was like, Hey, I'd love to help you think about how to take your mental health programs virtual because that was the background that I came from. And she was like, we don't really need that right now. But what we really need to do is be working in a national coalition because as our organizations face this like unprecedented challenge of working with survivors through the pandemic, where I don't know if you both know, but there was like a 40% Mm -hmm. global increase in violence and survivors were locked inside their homes. And I was like, let's do it. I'm on board. And I came on board and I started facilitating conversations about what this national space could look like. And about six months later, that became SOAR. So that's sort of the quick overview of how we got to that moment. And what is the kind of work you do via SOAR? And what's your mission there? So um, similar to SECI, there's about 40 to 45 organizations across the U.S. that serve South Asian survivors of gender-based violence. So those are either folks that grew up here or immigrants to the U.S. Who, Yes, South Asian immigrants to the U.S. Yeah. And um, SOAR is... So, sorry, if you look at all of those organizations, the primary focus is to provide direct services or intervention services to someone going through an abusive situation. In addition, those organizations often do like a lot of community ed- education and outreach as well. But when we came together in those months of discussion, the big thing that came up is those organizations do not have the capacity and means to focus on the root causes and systemic changes and even cultural changes that need to be made to actually prevent violence, and to also improve systems so that survivors can actually get the services that they need, whether it be public benefits or housing or, or anything like that. Wow. And each organization is, you know, it's, it's just kind of like the basic thing of we're stronger together. So by working together, we can actually present national data, national trends, stories, etc. So that our causes and all the things that we want to see and our fighting for are much stronger. So that's like sort of the general thesis mm-hmm. of SOAR is working to address the like root causes and systems that lead to violence. Mm. And I'll just briefly explain like our work takes place mm-hmm. in three main areas. We convene a coalition of 32 community-based organizations. We do a lot of like learning and community building and capacity building with them. We run a survivor storytelling program. Because we want to make sure that individual South Asian survivors can build their leadership. They are such strong anchors in the way that this movement unfolds. And we want to have a dedicated space to building that leadership and building community for them as well. Mm -hmm. And then the third is a research and advocacy arm. So we sort of take what we're hearing from our members on the ground and survivors, and we bubble those up into advocacy materials. So just to like, I know that can be kind of confusing. For example, when Roe fell this summer, we developed a briefing on what are the unique needs, the reproductive justice needs of mm-hmm. South Asian survivors of gender-based violence. So, really giving folks an understanding of what the in-depth issues are, but at a national like level, mm-hmm. that's our work. Um, <laughs> happy to like
0: yeah explain more if any of that was unclear Uh, oh my gosh that's really amazing I like how structured and pointed and targeted it is you know starting from like research and advocacy to actually the individual survivor and like giving them a safe space right Mm -hmm. I think with any kind of abuse you know any kind of violence what you need is a sense of like you know what the victim blaming happens the victim shaming happens you don't want that You just want to save space where no one questions what you're saying. Yeah. And they just accept it and accept you and accept your experience. Right. And I think that helps with, you know, for yourself and that community feeling.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And most of the survivors that might come to that program, it's like they are there after maybe they have been to an organization and received services for a few years or actually 50% of them were staff members working at one of these organizations. Mm -hmm which was fascinating which is like not surprising but wonderful in a way because a lot of times like they are now providing services to another survivor without actually having the space to do like their own healing work. So we almost view it as like a long-term healing space even for myself someone who experienced what I did maybe 10 to 15 years ago now. I'm still thinking about that. I'm mm-hmm. still processing how I move through the world and how that has impacted me. So yeah it's maybe like, yeah, people we sort of invite into that space are folks who are like on that long-term, you know, just like any of us are kind of always on that journey of self-growth and learning and healing. So, yeah.
0: What I actually wanted to talk about was, uh, I think in our prep call, you were mentioning and, uh, Now thinking back to the time I actually watched the dance on film and how you blended, you know, your experience and, you know, it's almost a full circle moment in terms of healing, right? Because Mm -hmm. like you were mentioning, what you went through was the physical body was such a, was the tool Mm -hmm. that, you know, and that was your experience and to kind of use that to, you know, heal. Mm -hmm. and, And what was that creative process like? Like, and how did that, all of that come about? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um,
1: actually, I, um, so I was telling you, SOAR runs a survivor storytelling program and we ran the pilot of it this year and I actually participated in it. And, you know, to my, sort of what I was saying earlier, where like I struggled with silence and not knowing how to like use, like say the words to articulate what happened. I felt, one, it was important for me to do this program sort of like as someone who is building the program, but Too, like, it was a very personal journey for me to be able to share in a space of South Asian people. And, you know, the first time I told my story more publicly, it was through an anonymous poster at a college event. And I remember, like, so I actually took that written version and I sort of worked on it through the storytelling program. And what I ended up working on was a script for this video or a storyboard for this video. And so it was really well timed because Sonali Scanlan, who runs the Dance Dance on Camera Film Festival, which through which my film was made, reached out to me just as this program was ending. And I think in a previous world, like I had told Sonali no before. I always knew I wanted to create this, but I wasn't ready. And it was so like I don't know. I think a personally like fulfilling moment for me to know that I actually felt ready after going through SOAR Survivor Storytelling Program. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. So the creative process was basically using that program to help me chalk out what I wanted to say. But actually what's kind of interesting, oh gosh, it gets a little complicated, but basically I was telling Shweta this before, but the last message that I received from the sort of individual that um, assaulted me used, called me a goddess. And Shweta and I have talked about this word before because it's a word that bothers me. And I was realizing just how sexualized that term could be and what the male gaze on the goddess body. And, and many people have talked about this and danced about this. And my mentor, Michael Prakash, has like,
0: yeah, I think, three full yeah, productions. Yeah, she has lots of powerful pieces on that.
1: Yep. Yes, exactly. Like really taking that dichotomy and unpacking it. Mm-hmm. This film really centered around that and the idea of that word and, and kind of honestly, like the discomfort. and the disgust that and the physical sort of visceral reaction that I have to that word because of that message that I received right and just like one thing that was interesting is me and the videographer went into that space and we actually filmed the whole thing improv Mm -hmm. yeah it was a really like cathartic and like nerve-wracking but I think like I don't know cathartic experience to know the general storyboard but also like really be like I had to put myself in the space of where was I when I was 15 mm-hmm. where was I when I was 17 where was I when I was x years later yeah and that was like a healing process in itself yeah. uh, I can't say I love every part of my film because no dancer or artist <laughs> <loved what that's laughs> <I was> creating, <laughs> but it was still
0: a beautiful process mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. my gosh yeah because when you said it, and I remember even watching it when I watched it without knowing any of this, right? Yeah. It felt really powerful because I think what you said, you know, the word goddess, like it's, it's such a, it comes with so much, I don't know, like all the adornments yeah. and, you know, how you're viewed, yeah. you know, it it all suddenly changes, right? Yeah. And I think there are cultures wherein they make little girls goddesses, Yeah, you know, and all of that whole thing, it kind of is like, so I can sense like you know especially tied to your you know experience with the specific word I can only imagine how much it just like gave you that you know that physically like uh
1: feeling yeah. you know so yeah oh my gosh and um I mean I'll just add like because I didn't really talk about the details of the like film itself but it, it is about like that adornment piece and how in like Indian classical dance we like you know have pretty elaborate yeah like getting adornment, jewelry, makeup, like our eyes are sort of painted to look like the Davian, like the fish eyes. And I think we feel really beautiful in that. And it, it's, yeah, it's like a moment of empowerment when you and you want to feel beautiful on stage. Mm-hmm. You want to like own, you know, your own sort of like power and beauty. And so then to unpack that and say, what is it? what is it like to take away all those pieces? And mm-hmm. I think the other thing that I think about through that is like the way we mask ourselves, the smile we put on. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, older men in my family will always tell me, like, oh, smile more. Or like, why aren't you smiling? Ugh. And I'm like, Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so I, you know, think about all of those things, even in the adornment. It's like yes. all the ways that yes. we and like, you know, we might dress in a way that accentuates certain parts of our body and like, is that for us? Or we might put makeup on in a certain way. And like I think we've been in an age of like people reclaiming like Dressing for ourselves, mm-hmm. putting on makeup for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the end of the video, ta- it ends with me taking off that yes. stuff. And it, that's just kind of like a question to myself of like, what would it be like if you didn't listen to what, you know, the way that anyone told you to dress or mm-hmm. be or act? And what is you, like the raw you, feel like? Yeah. That's so powerful. That is really powerful. In fact, you know what? Until now, I haven't really. Had a moment to sit and think that way. That kind of insight would be so powerful as to what, how would you really, really, in fact, you know, how, who would you really be? I think we're all Mm. just products of our environment, right? Just forget the dressing part. It's just the whole nature, the personality. If everything else was removed, who is the real me? And that's a big, big question that's a huge question but that's amazing and uh, i actually still so soar is such a fascinating uh, name why soar i mean how did this come about just the name such a good question i was just speaking about this yesterday um, and if you don't mind i'm actually going to pull up the quote that inspired us so i was actually reading the book emergent strategy as i was you know in the early days of building SOR. i don't know if both of you have read it um, by Adrian Marie Brown, and the whole thesis is about patterns in nature and how we might bring that into like patterns of um, you know anything like uh, or sorry practices for building a business or an organization or a, any sort of group. And so in the book, she quotes um, someone named Sierra Pickett, and the quote is: "Starlings' murmuration consists of a flock moving in sync with one another, engaging in clear, consistent communication." and exhibiting collective leadership and deep, deep trust. (laughs) And so this imagery of a flock of birds, you know, we're like primarily this collective of survivors and organizations and thinking about like our our whole idea is like, what is our collective power, right? What is it like to move together towards the future? And even in murmurations, which are these like packs of starlings, um, they alternate who leads the pack. Mm. who leads the front of the murmuration. So even thinking about all of these ideas and how we move forward, you know, like we were so inspired by that. There's also a Maya Angelou poem on our website, which I also came across early on, which talks about the free bird Mm. leaving like the cage and... and, Just um, gave me the goosebumps, actually. Yeah. Just gave me the goosebumps. So much of this bird imagery was, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be the flock or the free bird or anything like that. And just that was so inspirational and thinking about, individual survivors leaving a relationship um a- anything so those are I would say the two core inspirations but it's funny you know like after you have something on your mind you continue to see it so I feel like that whole year and even to now like I always see bird imagery bird poetry like all of these things that I like continue to add to my bucket of like why soar has the name that we have um I also think soaring like mm-hmm, the full, mm-hmm. you know, that word is just so inspirational to like remind myself like what are we here to do together Mm. Mm. that's true actually it's pretty inspiring hearing the words so yeah Mm -hmm. right yeah
0: this has really really been such an inspiring conversation i think uh one of the things we want to definitely you know before we wrap up is we always ask women who've gone through any kind of, you know, challenges like big or small, like when you were at a low point, you know, um, whether it was this experience or anything else, where did you draw strength from to move forward? And what were your um, inspirations? Where did you draw strength from?
1: Such a good question. Um, There's a book called Unquiet Mind. Um, It's this woman who has she's writing a memoir about having bipolar disorder mm. and in each of her highs through the book there is a theme that it is apparent and it's that she had a source of love in her life mm. and it was after reading that book I was in college that I realized how important love is mm-hmm. and I think that that is something that I've like sought out above all and I, I would say I like strongly attribute honestly my growth in the past few years to having like a really loving and stable partner mm-hmm. but also love and friendship <laughs> yeah I don't know if that's like the answer you're looking for Oh no, yeah no totally I feel like yeah that book was a light bulb for me and just like the power of love to help you like recover or um keep going mm-hmm. or you know just feel a sense of, of worth and purpose exactly um, because that's also come it starts with self-love also
0: right totally. you're accepting it accepting what your experience was you're giving yourself that grace and yeah. you know that time to heal yeah and then you know you seek out love yeah. you know which is a basic human need you yeah. know it's yeah and you
1: know for the, the community that we're a part of with NYC yes. I think one of the things that's like an intangible that's difficult to yeah it's in the intangible but Mm -hmm. sort of felt by everyone which is like when you're in that room there's a shared love for dance but there's also this like sort of unwavering support for one another to like get through the session and like that is the source of power and strength a reminder for me like to end my week with that and also go into the weekend and the next week with being like we did that we did Mm -hmm, that together mm -hmm, you know, you and I might not talk like every week or even every two weeks, but like that bond now, like even through that experience is very strong.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I've had many a circle time moments where, you know, I felt Mm -hmm. the the energy and the love and the support of community is so palpable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it is, right? Connection with one another, whether, you know, you're, uh, you were referring to the flock of birds and, you know, whatever that is, right? It is that sense of like, we're all in this together. So mm-hmm. how can we support each other? And I think, especially in the work that you do, that is paramount. You mm-hmm. you just need that. That's mm-hmm. like, I almost feel like that is the key, mm-hmm. you know, to unlocking the process of healing, right? Totally. Yeah.
1: I love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our <sighs> conversation. I think we could just go on and on. There's so many topics here that you just talked, that we could just like draw. Many sub conversations from there. But um, in the interest of time and in sparing your throat and this <laughs> conversation now, but it was really lovely meeting you, Rita, and for the, all the great work you do. Yeah. I honestly forgot at some point that we were on a podcast. And I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> <like, laughs> That's why we love our
0: chivizations, you know, because it's truly like sitting with a friend on a couch and having a deep, you know, conversation. So, yeah, thank you so much. Let's not
1: forget that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It was so fun. Lovely, lovely meeting you, albeit over Zoom and having this wonderful conversation and hope to continue many more. Thank you both. Special thanks to Shweta for (laughs) all her love and also having me on this podcast. Of
0: course, of course. Our pleasure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, everyone, for tuning in until the next episode. Bye. 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 You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Do continue to give us your valuable feedback via ratings, reviews, and hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Your support means the world to us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at chai underscore break underscore podcast to get the scoop on our latest episodes dropping every Wednesday. You can also write to us at chaibreakpodcast at gmail.com.